Good morning again. If you've got a Bible with you, you can go with me to the book of Genesis, which we'll be starting today. <clears throat> we'll be in a variety of different places in Genesis. We won't be uh, in just one spot because we're doing something of an overview, but uh, if, you, if you'd like to follow along with us and you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles that are chair racks, Bibles that are in the chair racks, and you will never find it easier to find the passage of Scripture that we are looking for. Just kind of flip open to the beginning, get past the table of contents, and you will be there. Uh, I recognize as I say this that this is the wrong morning to make this push, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, uh, I want to encourage you to participate in a community group as they're starting back up. That may not be today. Uh, it may not be uh, in the nearest future for you because we've got lots of people who are sick with a variety of things and you may want to steer clear of that and we would certainly welcome you doing that. So take this as a, as a reminder to participate uh, in that fictional future where we're all well again and there are no more variants and everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, but we would, there are so many important things that happen in community groups. So if you've never participated in one, stop by the information desk, get some information about that, even if it's not today or in the next week or so that you get involved. It's an important thing for you to get involved in, and I just want to encourage you uh, to, to explore that in that way. I want to start this morning by talking to you a little bit about the life of Frederick Douglass. Many of you uh, have learned about Frederick Douglass in school. Maybe you have read some of the works of Frederick Douglass. But Frederick Douglass was a man who boarded a northbound train in 1838 and made an escape from slavery. If you had been with him on that train, you would not have known at that time the kind of man that he was going to become. In addition to becoming one of the leading abolitionists, not only of his era, but the leading voices for the abolition of the slave trade in, in our country's history, he was a man who was known as a great orator he was a pastor, he was a man of deep faith, he was a writer and an author. He made numerous contributions and writings that are still being published and purchased and read today. Douglas wrote not one, not two, but three autobiographies. I would struggle to fill a couple of chapters with my autobiography, and it would be the most boring autobiography that you had ever read in your life. But Frederick Douglass wrote three autobiographies in his lifetime where, in which he sought to communicate his life story, to share his life experiences with the public. But one of the things that he struggled with in the writing of his autobiographies is that his story, as he would write it, started with his own earliest memories. Think about the autobiographies that you've read or the biographies that you've read. They rarely start with the first memory of the person that's, that's being profiled in the book, what often is done in these books is that the author will profile where that person was situated in history. That person will, will profile that person's parents, their grandparents. They'll look about their roots, about where they came from. But that was something that Frederick Douglass couldn't do. When he told his story, he could tell very little of who his ancestors were or where they had come from or what he had done, what they had done. In fact, Frederick Douglass didn't even know his own birthday. He wasn't even sure about the year of his birth, much less his family tree. In his second memoir, which is called My Bondage and My Freedom, he says this, In regard to the time of my birth... I cannot be as definite as I have been respecting the place, nor indeed can I impart much knowledge concerning my parents. Genealogical trees do not flourish among slaves. 
And he writes about the fact that, that slaves were discouraged and even punished for asking any questions about their origins or about who their parents might have been if they didn't know it, about wh- where and when they were born. Alex Haley wrote a best-selling novel that became a miniseries called Roots, and it's a fictionalized version mostly of, of, uh, of the descendants leading up to he himself, the author. It traces a, a young man who's captured in the slave trade in 1700s in Africa and just follows his descendants all the way up through into uh, Alex Haley's time. But Haley once said this, as he's speaking about the novel that he had written. He said that we all have a hunger, marrow deep, to know our heritage, to know who we are and where we came from. That book and that series inspired a Harvard law professor named Henry Louis Gates Jr. to write books and start a PBS series called Finding Your Roots in which he takes people who's, who, and use, uses DNA basically to, to build out their family tree so that they have a, a deeper understanding of where they come from and where their people have been. One of the things that he does with the people that he profiles in that show is he gives them a a book of life, he calls it, which is their family tree. Douglas was right, though. Genealogical trees do not flourish among slaves. He was just one of millions who had no known connection to their past. No connection to a homeland. No known history other than that of being a possession rather than a person. Of not even knowing one's own birthday. God's people, Israel, would have understood what that felt like as they made their own run for freedom. Pharaoh, under the abundance and weight of the plagues that God had sent upon him for his refusal to let the people go, finally relented and the people made uh, uh, their escape. But as they ran from the clutches of slavery in Egypt, they were now a people without a home. They were people without any sort of national identity other than slavery. And as they began that transition, that process from, from possession to personhood, there were new questions that they needed to answer. Who were they? Where did they come from? What was their purpose? And where in the world were they going? The book of Genesis, along with four other books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the book of Genesis, along with those other four books, make up something that's called the Pentateuch, the, these five books And together, Genesis with these other books provides answers to those questions. There's a very real sense in which Genesis, which begins with the tree of life, was a sort of book of life that could be handed to these people that would let them know who their people were and where they had come from and and what their national identity was. But the scope of Genesis is so sweeping, so all-encompassing that it answers those big questions not only for just recently freed Jewish slaves, but it makes the audacious claim to answer those questions for every single person in every single culture, in every single country, for all of time. That is a staggering claim. And today we begin a study through this book. 
Genesis is the foundation on which the rest of Scripture rests. There are seeds planted in the book of Genesis that are going to to push through the roots of the soil, uh, push push through the, the soil of Scripture. They are going to bloom and grow. We are going to see concepts introduced here in this book that are going to grow into to beautiful trees of doctrine and understanding as the storyline of the Bible progresses. If you, are, if you were to remove Genesis from the Bible, you would undercut the entire message of Scripture. As we work through the book together this year, there are going to be times where we proceed slowly, where we stop and examine a doctrine that is mentioned for us in seed form. And we're going to trace that through the Bible to understand a little bit about the fullness of what the Bible has to say about it. There will be other times when we're going to take perhaps a few chapters in one big chunk. So that we can understand the main burden of that story that's told to us. By the time we're done, I hope we understand not only this book, but I hope we view the entirety of Scripture with fresh eyes and in deeper ways. We often come to Genesis looking for information that it doesn't directly provide. We want Genesis to be a history book. That allows us to calculate specifically the age of the earth. We want Genesis to be a textbook. Which perfectly harmonizes for us faith and science. We want Genesis to be an encyclopedia. In which we can skim through the index. And find out information about what happened to the dinosaurs. We want Genesis to be a book that helps us focus in on the minutiae, like who in the world are the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. If you have never heard about the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, it's wild and I don't have all the answers for it. And I'll just prepare you right now. There's some crazy stuff in this book. Uh, a deeper look at this book is going to de-Sunday school you from it. When you read through this book again and you see it with fresh eyes, there's all these stories that you heard about in Sunday school about all these, peop- about all these people who are these amazing figures. And as you're reading their stories, you scratch your head and think, my Sunday school teacher left some details out of these stories. And to be honest with you, I'm quite thankful that Sunday school teachers leave some of the details out of these stories because there are some some conversations that I am not yet ready to have with my four-year-old or my five-year-old, and you probably aren't either. We grow up looking at some of these these people, and for some reason they get romanticized for us as, as just giant heroes of the faith. And then when you start examining the lives of some of the figures, they did some really, really awful things. The book of Genesis is filled with some surprising stuff. We sometimes miss what Genesis, though, because we're asking it to do something that it is not intended to do. We sometimes miss the point. I'm certainly not intending to suggest that Genesis can't speak to any of the things I just mentioned, although I'll let you down easy at the beginning. If you don't already know, the Bible does not talk about, Genesis does not talk about dinosaurs. I wish it did. It doesn't that I'm aware of. And I'm not in charge of the content of it. So you'll have to get your dinosaur information somewhere else. But what I am saying is that when we step back and recognize that we are people as an audience separated by thousands of years from the original audience, one of the things that we have to try to do is step out of our shoes 
and into their sandals and recognize that they were a people who had a very different view of the world, a people who had assumptions that were very different than ours. And even though they were people who were in, any way, in many ways very different from us and had different assumptions of, and conceptions of the world than we have, Genesis has a lot to say to us. And if we let it speak the way it intends to speak, it will speak to us in a fresh way. Genesis provides or begins to provide answers for the biggest philosophical questions of life. Questions that are wrestled with in the academy and the university that philosophers have spent centuries spilling ink over and the questions that regular ordinary people like me and you feel in, in ordinary ways in our ordinary lives. Questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? Where did something come from? Why am I here? Do I have purpose? Or am I an accident that happens to exist and will one day happen to no longer exist? What is my purpose? Has something gone wrong? Kind of seems like it. Do I have value? Do we as human beings who each of us is a, a blip, a speck in the vastness of the universe that we still don't even understand its vastness, and on this long stretch of, of, of timeline that encompasses all of human history, I mean, when you think about the space that you occupy in the vastness of the universe and in this stretch of time, it's pretty insignificant. But do you still have value? Genesis lays foundations for these kinds of questions to be answered. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to introduce the book to you. And this is, uh, I'm going to try to simplify it the best I can. I'm going to try to ask three pretty simple questions that I think will give us a little bit of an overview of the book so that we're better equipped to then start looking at the parts of it in the weeks that follow. The first question that I want to ask is this, who wrote Genesis? Who wrote Genesis? And I've already given away my answer in the introduction where I've talked about the audience. I believe that Moses was largely responsible for putting the material together that makes up not only Genesis, but the entirety of the Pentateuch. And yet I do want to say a few more words about it, because if you read anything about Genesis and any sorts of commentaries or resources about it, you're going to encounter other views, particularly ones that have occurred in the last 200 years. And there's one in particular that I want to share with you. There's, within the last 200 years, there have been many scholars who have looked at the book and said, Moses was not the author. The author, they, and they've conceived of four potential authors who they refer to as J, E, D, and P. And you're saying, as your eyes glaze over, why are we talking about this? <laughs> I'm just trying to prepare you for some of the discussions in case you go so that if you do read the commentaries, you're like, well, he never said anything about that. J, E, D, and P, that stands for the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Deuteronomist, and the Priestly Code. And that sums it all up, right? Now you understand. <laughs> so... There are people who have looked at this and said, we see different kinds of writing styles and different emphasis of vocabulary as we, as we look at these books. There, there seems to be an author who has had a fondness for, for using the name Elohim as opposed to Jehovah. And so we'll call that author's contributions and materials that of the Elohist because it comes from Elohim. 
And so different people have seen this book as a conglomeration of these sources. The problem with this theory, and we're not going to walk into all the details of it because that would take us, we could have a whole seminary class on that. But the problem with this is the scholars are constantly changing their minds about which parts belong to which person. And so it is a constant moving target of who or what J, E, D, and P, R, and what exactly their contributions have been. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we were to get to the end of Genesis and the book was signed, Love Moses? I wish he had had the forethought to do that. But if you flip to the end of Genesis, it does not say fondly Moses, because I definitely wrote this. And yet... People, believers throughout church history have, have attributed authorship to Moses, not because he signed it, but because, because many people see that Jesus himself seemed to think that Moses was the primary author of the Pentateuchs of the Pentateuch. We see Jesus saying things like this in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus seemed to subscribe to the common Jewish understanding that the Pentateuch was the books of Moses, that these books had been written, had been authored by Moses. Now, this doesn't mean that Moses didn't use any sources for his work. Genesis doesn't feature Moses at all. He's not in Genesis. And Genesis wasn't around, or Moses wasn't around, when the universe began. So Moses is dealing with sources when he's describing the events of Genesis, when he devise, uh, it describes the events of the patriarchs. Furthermore, when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. And I think we can safely assume that Moses did not, right before he died, Say, okay, here's how I died. <laughs> Just so I can make sure I get it into the end of the book. Somebody else would have had to written about how Moses died at the end of Deuteronomy. So seeing Moses as the author does not mean that no sources at all were used, but that there were no other contributors, and so we don't have to, to lose our faith over any things like that. But I do believe the Pentateuch as a whole is viewed by the rest of the Bible as authored by Moses. There's a second question that I want to ask, and it's this. How is Genesis structured? How is Genesis structured? And before we get into some of the, the, the nuts and bolts of that, because if you're anything like me, you sometimes lose the forest for the trees, Okay, we get down, we get down in, in the minutiae, and sometimes we need to be able to look up and almost look at a map and say, okay, where are we again in this? And so I want to give you some, some dividers, some structures, some handles, some divisions that will help you find your way. They're kind of like, uh, if, you're, if you're hiking there, you sometimes see that people blaze a, a, a mark or a paint on trees along the way that are just markers that help you know you're on the path. And I want to give some of those things to you. But before I do that, I just want to point out that the Genesis is expertly crafted. It is not a book that is haphazardly put together. It is not a book that is full of just random conglomerations of documents that just kind of got shoved together. When you look at the Hebrew text of the book of Genesis, it is, it is easy to see that it is a work of art in many senses. And I'll explain what I mean by that. There, are, there, are, there is structure to the book. There are repeated words and phrases that are meant to remind us of other stories that have, been, that have already been uh, mentioned. There are, there are words and phrasings in later stories that are meant to make us say, Oh, we heard about that back here. I bet there's a connection. Not only are th there things like that, but as, as a literary work that's put together, there, are, there is a symmetry to the book. Let me give you a, just a couple examples uh, from the beginning. The first section of Genesis covers 1, 1 to 2, 3. 
1 and verse 1 to 2 and verse 3. Remember, in the original Hebrew Bible, there's no chapters and verses. Okay, so you can divide it wherever the divisions are. They, didn't, they weren't doing that. That's something that came centuries later. And they're very helpful. Otherwise, when I'd say, turning your Bibles to whatever, we'd have to spend a long time trying to figure out where exactly we're going to be. But in this opening section, up through 2, 3, in chapter 1 and verse 1, it begins with the Hebrew word order, God created heavens and earth. When the section closes in 2, 1 to 3, the Hebrew word order is the exact reverse of that. And there are elements like that built into uh, Genesis everywhere. I'll point out another feature in the opening chapters, and that is the author's fondness for the number seven and multiples of seven. Let me give you some examples. There are, there are seven days in the creation week, which is easy, which we can all see. But there are words and phrases that constantly appear in multiples of seven. For example, God is mentioned 35 times, earth 21 times, heaven and firmament 21 times, and then there are phrases like, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, that each occur seven times. Now, I've said that, but I want to put the brakes on some of you biblical numerology people, okay? There's always that one person in the group that's like, ooh, I can unlock the secret code in the Bible through numerology. And I don't know if you're here this morning, but you've got to stop doing that. What I'm pointing out is not the secret code that's going to help us unlock the secret message of the Bible. What I'm talking about here is artistry, intentionality. Somebody who knows what they're doing, intentionally, not just writing, but writing to make a theological point that they want to be beautiful. And I don't want that to be lost on us. This book is a work of art. Now, let's talk a little bit about structure. There are basically two different ways that we could divide the structure of this book. The first way is looking at this book as as presenting to us two eras of history. The first era of history would be what we might refer to and what people writing about it often refer to as primeval history. Primeval is a word that simply means the earliest historical beginnings of something. And so you could refer to chapters 1 through 11 as primeval history. It begins with origins. It works its way into the fall and the immediate after effects of mankind's fall into sin. And then it proceeds into seeing the stories of Cain and Abel. Uh, We see uh, uh, Noah and we see the Tower of Babel, things like that. But then there is a distinct shift beginning in chapters 12, beginning in chapter 12 and moving all the way into chapter 50, which some people have referred to as patriarchal history. Now I recognize that that word patriarchal has particularly negative connotations in our culture, but we're using that term simply to designate that a father of a family or a clan So maybe I can illustrate this divide in a couple of different ways. Primeval history in 1 to 11 versus patriarchal history in 12 to 50. If you are on your phone and you're looking at your photos, most of us have like 47,000 photos in our phone. And that's because you can take 100 pictures of one thing rather than in the old days, which some of you don't remember or know about, but it used to be you had like 24 pictures in your camera roll. And if you're at 24 pictures and I go to go to Walgreens to get them developed and I got to pay for it, I'm going to be careful which picture I take. I'm going to take one picture of my family standing in front of a bridge. Now, because you've got unlimited space seemingly, you can take 25 pictures of your family in front of, standing in front of a bridge that looks cool. And we all think, I'm going to sort through the camera roll later and find the best one. But we never do that. So we've got 47,000 pictures on our camera roll. And our phone's always saying, out of space when you want to install something new. Okay, 
Where I'm going with this is when you're on your phone and you're swiping through your, your pictures, the faster you swipe, the more your phone learns, oh, she wants to go really fast. And so you can swipe through months if you get it going fast. And if you, you can swipe through months and if you've got the space, several years of time as you're swiping through those photos. And that's what's happening in primeval history. Chapters 1 through 11 cover a really large portion of time, particularly as it's compared to patriarchal history where we stop and we slow down a little bit. Because beginning in chapter 12, we see the call of Abram, who becomes Abraham. And then we start following in much greater detail the story of this man and his family, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and Joseph. We slow way down in chapters 12 through 50, especially when it's compared to the first 11 chapters. That's one way of having categories in your mind that will help you see the book. There's another way to see the structure of the book that I want to share with you. And that structure is called the Toledote formula. And I know that that is a concept that most of you are likely familiar with, so I won't spend any time on it at all. Except that that's probably a very strange thing. You're like, wait a minute, what, what have you been reading, Matt, and looking at this book? Well, the Toledote formula is just a fancy way of describing a Hebrew phrase that appears numerous times through the book. That Hebrew phrase is toledot. And it's translated in our Bibles, especially if you're using the, the, the ESV as your translation, it appears again and again, these are the generations. And that Hebrew phrase, these are the generations, is a marker. Remember I told you that this book was not just thrown together by someone saying, well, I need to get the whole story together, so I'll piece the whole thing randomly together. It's not that. The author of Genesis has intentionally put way markers along the way to remind us of where we're at and what the section that follows is going to be like. In fact, the Hebrew word uh, toledot comes from uh, a root which means to bring forth. So our word generate would be the verb or generations would be the noun. That's what's going on in Hebrew. Five times when this phrase introduces something, a straight genealogy follows. The other five times... It mentions a person and then tells the story about that person, what happened with that person and with that person's line. So whenever we see that phrase, these are the generations, the author is in effect telling us, hey, I just started a new chapter. The author is telling us, hey reader, I'm about to tell a story about this person. These are the generations of so-and-so. I'm going I'm to tell you the significance of the person that I have just named. The only place where these uh, the generations does not introduce a proper name is the very first use in chapter 2 and verse 4, which I'll show you in just a moment. So what I want to do is just briefly uh, uh, walk through these 10 uh, structural indicators. And I, I mean it. It'll be, it'll be fast. I'll share a scripture verse with the first three. And then the other ones uh, I'll, I'll just walk through. And for those of you who are slide people that feel like they cannot move on if they've missed a slide. What I want to encourage you to do is to let go of the slide. Let it go. You probably can't write, and I see some people shaking their heads, I cannot let it go. Here's the promise that I'm going to make you. I'm going to have Shelly email you. If you're the, I can't miss the slide person, I'm going to have Shelly email these structural divisions out this week so that you can get it and you can write it down. But the first time this word, these are the generations occurs, occurs is in chapter 2 and verse 4 when the Bible says, the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2 and verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I said this is the only time that that formula doesn't introduce a proper name. 
But what it does do is introduce a zooming in in the creation account of the first people. Because chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, is all about Adam and Eve. Number 2 is found in chapter 5 and verse 1. It is the generations of Adam. Genesis 5 and verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And in this instance, most of this is just genealogy. The third instance is found, it's the generations of Noah. It's found beginning in chapter 6 and verse 9, where it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that, these are the generations, includes the historical account of everything that happened with Noah. Do you see how it works? Does that make sense? I mean, I'm going to write these down. Or I'm going to, I'll walk through these then with you. They'll be sent out to you. But what I would encourage you to do if you're a Bible writing kind of person is find some way to mark in your Bible where all of these divisions are so that you, when you go back through and revisit, have an idea of what some of these waypoints are as you move through the book. Here's the rest of them. Number four, the generations of the sons of Noah in 10.1. Five, the generations of Shem in 11.10. Six, the generations of Terah in 1127. Seven, the generations of Ishmael in 2512. Eight, the generations of Isaac in 2519. Nine, the generations of Esau in 36.1. And I might mention it shows up again. It's repeated in verse 9. And finally, 10, the generations of Jacob in chapter 37 and verse 2, which is going to follow all the way through the rest of the book. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit of, of how Genesis can be divided. All right, so let's turn the page to that and ask our third and final question. What is a major theme in Genesis? Now, I've worded that question intentionally to say, what is a major theme in Genesis, because I'm not sure that I can stand up here and definitively say to you, here is the major theme of Genesis. In fact, preparing to preach for this book has been the most daunting undertaking that I have taken to preach so far. Because this book is long, because this book has so many important concepts, because there is so much disagreement about various pieces of this book. Uh, it, is a, it is a difficult book to prepare for. And on top of that, I'd like to think that I know most of the books that have been written, even if I haven't read them about a particular book of the Bible. But the, the volume of books that have been written about Genesis would take lifetimes to read. It's a daunting task. And so I'm not going to pretend to say that I can boil the message of Genesis down into just one thing. What I'd rather do instead is suggest a theme, particularly as that theme is connected to these structural markers. These are the generations. One of the things that I want to point out to you is in the very first chapter of Genesis. In the very first chapter of Genesis, immediately following the creation of humanity, the Bible says this in verse 28, simple four-word phrase that's on the screen behind me, and God blessed them. This is absolutely crucial for us to internalize. Chapter 1 speaks of God's intention to bless creation in general but not only does it speak of his intention to bless creation in general, but it speaks of his specific intention to bless humanity. Genesis is a story about God's intent to bless the people he has created. And one of the things that we find out very quickly is that humanity immediately screws everything up. 
We don't, get to, we don't get to make it more than three chapters into the story before we find humanity rebelling against God's authority and God's rule rather than being made in the image of God, deciding they want to be God themselves. So Genesis is an intent to bless that overcomes humanity's sin. Genesis tells a story that is a true story, a story that's intended to encompass all other stories. It's the story of a God who creates from nothing, blesses the world that he creates. But as soon as we reach chapter 3, we now see put together with blessing the promise of curse. Because of humanity's rejection of God's rule, we see the idea of curse introduced already. The people are cursed. The world in which they live is cursed. And we, the readers, find out, oh, everything that has ever gone wrong in the world finds its roots there. But even in the midst of cursing, God repeats his intentions to bless. Because in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, which is sometimes called the first gospel, there is a promise made amidst the curse that Eve is going to have a descendant who is going to place his heel firmly on the head of the serpent. Even amidst the curse, God's intent to bless is still there. One of the interesting things about this book is that you are going to see as you read it, this intent to bless repeated again and again. Remember our, our second major section that says these are the generations begins in chapter 5 and verse 1 when it talks about the generations of Adam. And when the Bible says these are the generations of Adam, it immediately follows up in verse 2 of chapter 5 by reaffirming God's intent to bless. When Noah is introduced and the Bible says these are the, in, these are the generations of Noah, in chapter 9 in verse 1, once again, God reminds us God blessed Noah. When Abram comes onto the scene in chapter 12. One of the promises, one of the very first promises that God makes to him is that he will bless him and that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, who are the families of the earth? I do believe some of them are sitting here. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? Amidst the, the, the history of God's people, the history of this earth is, the, is a history of continued faithlessness. It is a history of continued rebellion. And in spite of our continued faithlessness and in spite of our continued rebellion, God never loses sight of his intent to bless he is going to bless his creation. He is going to bless his people. Genesis demonstrates God's faithful intent to bless generation after generation in spite of humanity's constant faithlessness. God's faithfulness is, is, is proclaimed splashed all over the pages of Scripture again and again. And one of the places that says it beautifully and clearly is Psalm 119, verses 89 to 90, which says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. God's intent from the very beginning was to bless, and even when the earth became cursed by sin, God's intent did not change. And when we come to 
The very first verse of the very first book of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew tells us this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In just two quick moves, he links Jesus to David and to Abraham in Genesis. Do you think he knew what he was doing when he started talking about the genealogy? And do you happen to know what the Greek word for genealogy is? Genesis. Recognize a word in there? In fact, at the end of this genealogy in in Matthew in verse 17 he says so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations once again we're seeing the language of genealogy and generations in the New Testament connected with Jesus they haven't forgotten there's an intentional link when we read that we're supposed to say huh We've heard this before. One of the things that Jesus does when he resurrects from the dead is is gently tell his followers, I told you. Now I'm not going to throw any shade at any of his followers because I would have been as disappointed as they were. I would have been as thick-headed as they were and not seen when he kept saying, hey, this thing's going to happen. I wouldn't have seen it either. But remember when Jesus is walking home on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? And he's talking to these two people and these people have no idea they're talking to Jesus. And they're just explaining to him how bummed out they were that the whole thing turned out the way it did. Now they eventually find out. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? (laughs) When you've been telling Jesus, I thought he was going to be more than that. But one of the things that Jesus does is as he's walking with them on the road is he says, is he basically says, let's run this whole thing back again. And where does Jesus start? We might expect that Jesus starts with his own birth. We might expect that Jesus would say, okay, remember how the angels appeared? Remember how they were singing in the sky when I was born? That should have told you something. Remember when I was sitting in the synagogue and I was talking to the, to the scribes and I was asking them questions and, and, and they were saying, hey, how can somebody this young have such a mastery of the Hebrew scriptures? Remember that? Or, hey, remember how it was perfect? Didn't you ever wonder like why that was? Why I never argued with my brothers and sisters? Remember when I turned water into wine? Remember when I raised that person from the dead? Remember when I opened that scroll to Isaiah and said, today this is fulfilled in your presence? I mean, he could have pointed to all sorts of things that started with his earthly ministry, but where does he start them? Luke 24 verse 27 says, and beginning with, what is it? Moses. In all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus said, okay, let's run this back from the beginning, he meant the beginning. He goes all the way back to the books of Moses, which includes Genesis, and says, this is what was happening. This has been God's intent from day one. And that's an amazing thing to think about. I'm going to conclude this way this morning and just say these things. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, let me invite you to explore the roots of the Christian faith. The Christian story doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. The Christian story starts here. If you want to get technical, it starts before there was a here. 
It's a story that makes the bold claim of providing the overarching narrative, the overarching story for all of our stories. It is a story about God's intent to bless. And it is a story that we can trace throughout the entirety of the Bible, even to the book of Revelation, where the Bible says that the the final state that we find ourselves in when Jesus makes everything right and new is not just a restoration of the way it was in the beginning. It's better than the beginning. It's a fulfillment of God's intent to bless a people for all eternity. And I want you to hear that story. It's a story that highlights God's faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness. It's a story that tells us who we are, where we're going, and what we're doing. It's a story that asks something of you. It's a story that demands your allegiance and your faith and your trust. It's a story about a promised child who is born to give his life to fulfill God's intent to bless rebels like me and you. I hope it draws you to faith in that Christ. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is an opportunity to worship. To step back, to go deeper into this story and to be reminded afresh and to be reminded anew of God's intent to bless generation after generation into the furthest reaches of eternity. So let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Lord, we thank you for this book that you have given us and pray that you would help us to see it with fresh eyes. We thank you for the promises of grace that are evident from the very beginning. And I pray that we would be able to carry that thread through as we encounter various roadblocks and seems and, and, and times where it seems like again and again your plan is thwarted and yet it isn't. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. If there's somebody here with us this morning who is exploring the Christian story, I pray that you would give them open eyes and open ears and open hearts to see and, re- and believe and, and recognize the beauty of this story. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.